Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Backport Stories with Chuck Stead. This is number five, story number five in season two. Uh, and uh, we've been having a great time actually talking about some rather deep conversations from time to time. Uh, but also, there's lots of room for some fun in these stories. And I'm sure you've seen by now, there's as much humor as there is uh, deep thought. And I think that's a good thing. Those are the two components that make a story make a story real and something to remember. So without any further ado, let's turn it over to Chuck Stead. Hi. Thanks, Joe. This one is called Large Wooden Bowls Filled with M&Ms. So it seemed that in the spring, the ground loosened up and started to sweat. The streams flowed down out of the mountains, carrying with their rush of churning cold water bits of forests, leaves, branches, old nests, feathers, bones, stones, and occasionally a thing I called roly-tolies, which was a name for any unknown something bobbing in the current. The earth warmed up, crocuses pushed their way through the sweating crust, little blue and white feathered cups with golden inner crowns, and drives to town, had the window down, with the new sweet spring air pouring in all over the dank, sour inside of the paint truck. And folks in the village placed throwouts on their curb in front of their houses. Tessie would shake her head at the gathered debris that lived for so long inside a village house, and she would say, Look at the junk that some people have. My God! And I did look. There was something lost about this growing collection of throwouts. Old gangly iron floor lamps like some awkward aquatic bird life. Stacks of bundled of National Geographics. Curling leather shoes. Wooden boxes of knobby iron plugs. Three-legged chairs. Hoosier cabinets piled with cans of crusted oil paint, long separated. Glass doorknobs like some ancient diamonds cast off from an evil queen. There was something lost about all this stuff. I studied the cast-offs. There were stories in here. In every little bit of etched iron, there was a story. Stories wrapped around the rotting leather. There were stories being thrown out by the families in the village. It started with a lamp. Over on 2nd Street, I discovered Uncle Claude's floor lamp with the dancing flower pattern shade out on the sidewalk. Actually, it was laying on its side, like the lost staff of an ancient seer. I tried dragging it up the street, but its weight was too much for me. It was iron with a fluted hollow stem and a solid circular base that had four little cast iron paws. I was about halfway across the street, dragging it by its frayed cloth electric cord like some umbilical cord from the beast. When Hunter, Hunter Gulick, came out to his front porch, the sound of the iron being dragged across the asphalt was like some great dying dinosaur to me. Hunter looked down at me. There, in front of the house, in the middle of the road, I said, Hi. Nice day, he said back. I smeared away the refuse of some active nostril. He stepped down off the porch. He walked out to where I stood. He studied the lamp. Fine piece of work. He said this as he dropped his hands deep into his trousers' pockets. His face fell into scrutiny of the lamp. Then, without invitation, he bent over, He stood the lamp up in the middle of the street. Now he stood back and he took it all in with careful consideration. Twice he tried to straighten the shade against its bent ring frame. A car swung around the bottom of Lake Road and came up the street. Hunter nudged me over to his side of the lamp. 
We watched while a woman, her head wrapped in a bright yellow bandana, passed us slowly. He watched her go by and said, Nice car. I looked up at him, at his face, looking down at me. I said, I need to bring this home to my house now. Hunter shrugged. He wrapped his hand around the fluted stem, and taking the lamp, he walked me back to First Street. Once we got to my folks' house, he left me with the floor lamp by my side. I went into the house in search of the perfect place for my new adoption. It seemed to me that the only worthy place was where another lamp, sort of ornate, a, a simple rendition of the same kind of lamp, was standing. This one was a good deal lighter and therefore easier for me to drag outside and leave by the curb in front of our house. I reasoned that if old things returned, then new ones would be cast off. By the time my efforts had been discovered, someone had already walked off with our perfectly good floor model. Tessie was furious. She dragged the old relic from Uncle Claude's out in front of the house and tossed it unceremoniously to the ground. Her reaction meant nothing to me. This was only the beginning. Old radios, rotting couch cushions, blown bicycle tires, anything cast off found affection in my heart. But no longer did I offer my treasures a choice place in the home. Given Tessie's response, they were now hidden, just beneath the surface of home life. Moldy geographics stuffed under the couch cushion, a box of rusty nails in an underwear drawer, something that looked rather like a dead fish in the bread box, all bits of someone's life, all bits of smelling of memory. By the time pickup day came around, ours was the largest heap in the village. Tessie nagged Walt about this. She said he wasn't spending enough time with me. Truth was, I regularly followed Walt around. I was his silent sentinel. Soon his walking extended outside the village, up along the river, or down beside the Erie Lackawanna freight yard. Sometimes we would climb into the GMC, we'd roll out 4th Street across the Thruway Bridge and head north. He would stop at graveyards, railroad crossings, and deserted gas stations, places that were filled with stories for him. We walked through this landscape, climbing over rusted engine blocks, inspecting heaps of old tires, kicking up soot from the track bed. Occasionally, he would talk about what had been there years ago. Once, we followed an old track to a gaping concrete-collared crater where the Sterling Mine Railroad had its turnstile. This had been the turnaround for the coal train engine. The great steaming iron engine with its tender would pull in across the pivot where the track table, powered by a couple of freight men, would turn and the engine would pull out in the other direction. When Walt was young and called Woodsy, he and his pals would sneak down and jump on the other side of the turntable to get a free ride. And the sweating railroad men who were pushing it along like this great iron horse above them, they would feel the imbalance of the children on the other side, and they would chase after them. The yard men swore at them, told them they'd skin you alive if you got caught doing this again. The kids would run off. But now, as we looked down, the open hole of iron and stone was filled with cans, bottles, and wet, rotting wrappers. We walked on, followed the old track where trees had grown up between the rails. On this wooded bed, great iron monsters once pulled through the valley, screaming their steam whistle cry like a devil tearing its way through the steel trestles. Now only the shadow of a ghost train even hinted at rolling through the wooded curtain. On again, and we came to a building, turreted like some decrepit castle, 
home to railroad gnomes. It was the Sterlington Stray Station. The glass windows, painted mostly black, were like the the shut eyes of a sleeping beast. An angular mud-colored cat spied us and slunk back through the heavy door that was just ajar to let in the light of day. Walt walked up to the building. He wanted to go inside, but I was afraid. I thought the black windows meant that this was a place that dead people stayed. They gathered here to eat their dead bread and their black tea, and when they sang their dead songs, no sounds could come out of their mouths. Nothing would be heard. We went inside anyway. We entered a large kitchen of a room. It was filled with egg crates, wooden bowls, iron bits and stacks of newspapers, glass bottles, everything dusty. In the middle of the room was a large round table at which three old men sat. They were baggy and grisly with almost beards and yellow teeth. The table they sat at had legs with feet with claws on balls. And there were cats, all sizes and colors, slowly slinking about with their eyes upon you. Cats that didn't mind you, but reminded you of cats that did mind you. Walt talked with the old men about places and people, their voices drifting off into eggshell whispers. They all drank red wine out of little mustard jar glasses, and they laughed, although I I didn't hear anything funny being said. I was starting to really want to get out of there when when I saw the M&Ms. There on the table before me was a large wooden bowl filled with M&Ms. A bowl big enough to sit in, filled with many-colored candied M&Ms. The only true color in the room was the M&Ms in the bowl. The men, sitting closest to the black window, they looked there at me, they peeked over the top of the M&Ms, and they said to me that I should eat some. One of the men said with a voice that sounded like it came from a a cave near the sea in a story. He said, eat some of them things. I got up on a chair and bent over the bowl. They were quiet and watched me. I raised my arms and then pushed them deep into the M&Ms, deep up to my elbows. The M&Ms ate my arms before I ate them back. After we left those men, I felt sorry for the tracks that no longer held trains, and sorry for the turntable filled with garbage, and sorry for the windows painted black on the glass, but mostly, mostly sorry I hadn't eaten more M&Ms. That was fun. <laughs> mostly sorry you hadn't eaten more M&Ms. I would have felt exactly the same way. Boy, <laughs> Man, oh man. And so you were a collector. You were a collector of, of old things. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm, I wish that the people at home could see. I'm sitting in a room right now, mostly surrounded by books, I would say maybe 60%, but also all kinds of neat things, you know, some of the hunting mementos of your father and, and uh, you know, tributes to beautiful animals and and all sorts of interesting paintings, and I'm just looking around. You could spend, oh, easily, you could spend a week in here and still find new things that, you, that you've that you actually been looking at but didn't actually realize were here. Really interesting, <laughs> fun stuff. It's a great place. It really is. But anyhow, so, so what what do you think put that into your into your heart and mind that, uh, you know, I want to hold on to some of these things? Oh, I, I know exactly what it was. My my grandfather was 
my lifeline. And then when he passed, I started looking at things being cast off. Remember, they sent him to Florida first. That's right. And when he came back, he complained about that. And that was time we lost. And so I started, I, I remember starting to get a sense of, don't let them throw you away. You know? Yeah. Uh, eventually, Walt and Tessie didn't have much money, and they bought me a, a set of trains that had an old engine. You know, there were secondhand trains. And Tessie, even as I was unwrapping them, was explaining to my oldest sister, we really couldn't buy any new ones. I, I feel bad about this. It was just the opposite. I loved them because they were old. Yeah. You know, I, <laughs> I, I, the steam engine in that electric train set, my grandfather must have ridden in that, you know, that's how I saw it because sure. he was an iron worker. So, so the old stuff had stories in it and it, the old stuff does, you know, it has stories in sure. it. And, um, and I was, I think at that point infused with the idea of being in touch with those stories. Yeah. And, and so being in touch with the past that they came from mm-hmm. and the people that, you know, that populated that past. That's really interesting. And, and Tess, of course, she's like, what the <laughs> hell is this? What are you dragging into my house here? Oh, my God. And some of the people that Walt would bring me to, those guys in the Sterlington Station, those were the Jones brothers. And uh-huh. they'd been evicted. Their family had been evicted from, I think it was the Sebago Lake area when Harriman State Park Watershed was being established. Mm-hmm. And they kind of had to find other places to live. And Eventually, when their mother passed, the three brothers that were still left moved into the Sterlington Station, much to the chagrin of the Ramapo Land Company, because by then they owned the station. But one of them worked for the land company, and you know, one thing led to another, and they just ended up living in this in a magnificent sta- a train station. It was an amazing building. But they lived there, you know. And the windows something. were black. I mean, <laughs> Isn't that something? and they had all these cats. I remember that too. They had a lot of cats. And they could do that. They, I mean, obviously today you probably couldn't do that. I guess, but but back then they. Well, I I I think I think it was more rural time, uh-huh. and even though people were there were there was such a thing as homeless back then, certainly sure. But I I think if you knew the folks and you knew what they'd been through. And a lot of people knew uh, what the folks who'd got evicted from the Harriman area that would have been Leyden Town and Sandy Fields and those places. I, I think there was a lot of uh, local sympathy. Mm-hmm. I don't. It wasn't uh, the state didn't have a lot of sympathy. You know, there wasn't a lot of sympathy on the larger level. But locally, I think folks who could find a pocket to stay in uh, that was tolerated. Yeah, folks would look the other way. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. the decency of it. And they liked M and M's. Well, all right. Well, my dad explained to me. He heard this story years ago. Walt did when I was, you know, when years later he heard me do this story once, and and he said, "Well, you know, a lot of those folks were diabetic. Oh, okay. And uh, and they had a lot of sugar issues, and uh, and that's a big part of it." No kidding. You know what's interesting about candy uh, from my own past. My my first, I guess you would call it legitimate job, was working for a company by the name of Lifesavers. And oh yes, wow, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. I do mean the candy. Yeah. And, <laughs> and it sounds silly, but um, Lifesavers was at that moment owned by Er Squibb, which is a pharmaceutical company at the time, which has since been swallowed up by other bigger pharmaceutical companies. But um, it was owned by Er Squibb and. 
And that was my first job, literally selling Lifesaver candy, beech nut gum, bubble yum, bubble gum, and sitting in rooms where executives would talk about, you know, the titanic struggle of bubble gum in America and things like that, which always made me kind of want to laugh, but I had to keep a very serious face because it meant a lot to them. They were a job. Yeah, they were talking about the numbers and everything else. But uh, the first meeting I ever went to, and, and this kind of connects, I think, in a way to, to this story, one of the executives, a man by the name of Bert Page, uh, got up to, to speak to us. And we're all, you know, there's about 600 of us. And we're in, in Florida at this big hotel. I think it was called the Innisbrook, you know, and beautiful place. And, and uh, this is the opening speech of the meeting. And, and he's talking about candy, of course, because that's what we, we sold. Uh, and uh, he says... Uh, he looks at us, and I'll never forget the words, because I just thought to myself, that's it. He got it. That's exactly what this is. He said, ladies and gentlemen, we sell candy. We sell an affordable happiness. <laughs> <laughs> I, thought, I thought, bam, that's it. He's exactly right. right. An affordable happiness. And and that's really what candy is. That's what it still is today. That's what it was back then. That's what it was a hundred years ago. It was an affordable happiness. Yeah. You know, Lifesavers yeah. came about because uh, the man who who started Lifesavers, Mr. Crane, I believe his name was, he sold chocolate, chocolate, and uh, of course, chocolate doesn't stand up in the summertime. So he decided, well, I've got to come up with this idea of a mint, a mint. That sure, can, sure. And that's how Lifesavers came about, but. But I thought to myself, that's exactly what it is. And I wonder if that's what it was for those three men in the in the train station. I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure. Just yeah. a little break from the, the drudgery of life and right. everything. Yeah. And they'd been through a lot. I mean, they were really, they weren't homeless. They had a building to be in, but this wasn't their home. This was a building that they were staying in. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's got to have an impact. Well, a little bright spot. You pointed it out. It was the only color in the room. It was. You know? <laughs> it was. Yeah. And once I realized it was there, it was like it was glowing to me. <laughs> yeah, sure. Oh, yeah. Calling you. Yes. Absolutely. Are you kidding me? How many children have been wired up through the through the night with yep. a little bit of candy at the yep. end of uh, Halloween or Christmas, that kind of a thing? So your dad knew these people, though. He, he and, used to take me to meet people from his past i think or people whose lives he knew about and he didn't always explain them he didn't you know he wasn't the talker that mal was but they knew him yeah. and he was always welcome into their homes and they'd sit around and talk about things without explaining them to me but i got to be there i got to be like the proverbial fly on the wall yeah and i think for him this was this was part of a legacy. This, but these are the tracks you lay down with with your son, I guess. And uh, occasionally, I would ask him, like when we would leave, I'd ask questions. Sometimes he'd answer them, and sometimes he just wouldn't answer them. You know, just you had the experience. You know, that's it. You know, yeah. You got to meet a little bit of history. Yeah, because that's what yeah. people are. They're all a little bit of history. Yeah. yeah, I think that's also how he was more accepting of the Ramapos having native identity. And Mal wasn't. Mal, Mal had a, a, a racist point of view about the Ramapos. That, and I'm not saying my, my dad didn't speak at times 
in a racially offensive way, you know, that was part of that generation. But he seemed to grasp that they had a heritage. And sometimes he would be proud of it. He'd bring me to meet somebody and, you know, he'd be proud of it. Or he'd talk about them in a way that clearly he knew stuff about them that he celebrated that other members of his white generation chose not to celebrate, maybe chose not to even know. Maybe they denied that these things were were real things about these people. Mm -hmm. You know, I saw your dad as somebody who was absolutely intensely aware of what was going on around him. The people, the places, the times, he knew what was going on. But he had this sense, and it's something that I've never been able to figure out how to have myself, because I think it's much healthier than the, the way most of us live you know, in quiet desperation. But uh, he he seemed to have a sense that they'll come around. They'll figure this out. You know, it, it may take them time to figure out that racism is wrong. It took me time. But they'll do it. They'll come to it sooner or later. You know, and of course, some, some never will. But there was a peace about the man. You know what I mean? He, yeah. He really, he was not about to jump up and down and get angry. And when you think about it, when I, I was doing a little bit of a, a podcast, you know, or a, a blog, I guess, a video podcast, I was, you know, getting very, very, as I tend to do, you know, very animated and angry about the things that are wrong right now in politics or whatever. And finally it occurred to me, I'm, I'm adding to the problem. I'm not helping. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to broker, you know, a, a oneness or a coming together. And I think that's what your father always seemed to understand is, you know, you're not going to get there by yelling back at somebody. You're, let them talk. Let them hear themselves. Maybe they'll hear that this doesn't make sense. That's one of the things I admired about him. And I know that he, he was a part of that time. And He was a part of that time. And I think there reaches a point in your adolescence when that comes along where you get impatient with your elders because why are they granting you this world? Why are they leaving you this world that seems to have all these broken parts in it? Yeah. You know, why, didn't they know this was not a good idea? You, you reach that point. And a part of that is you're, you're naive to understanding that change is a long evolutionary process. And it yeah. takes time and it takes guts and it takes courage, but mostly it takes work. He used to say about Mal, uh, we'd be together, and, and Mal would be worked up about something and talking a lot, and Mal was so engaging and so charismatic and so entertaining. And then Mal would turn to Walt, and, and whatever the topic was, he'd say, well, Walt, what the hell are you thinking about this? What are you thinking about this? And Walt would say, well, I, I, don't, I don't need to think much about it. You're doing it all yourself. You know, he would just sort of turn it back at him. Yeah, right, right. And, uh, and I, I think... There were times when I was an adolescent where I felt that was a cop-out. But Walt was resolved. He was, he was the zen of the village. Yeah, yeah. He didn't get much worked up about anything. Yeah. And there were times when I wanted him to get, I mean, later along the way, I wanted him to get worked up. But I think you're right. I think he got it that these things take time. And uh, if you're impatient, go in another room. Be impatient with somebody else. I, right. I don't care. You know, yeah. I'm just going to do this thing. He took you to meet these people and to interact with them and to become a part of their space and hear them. And, you know, I think he was teaching you in that way that 
these are the ways of life, and sometimes they're good ways and sometimes they're bad. But I also think that he was acutely aware of your reactions and that that might have really helped him to determine the right and wrong of things as well. I think you might be right. I think I think you you pay attention to the kids and see almost like a barometer. How are they responding to this stuff? Right. I think I think that that I don't know I don't know how intellectual that was, but I think emotionally that yeah. was real. Well him. at first, you know, kids don't really have a filter. Right. You know, and, and so at least before they're taught to hate or to like or whatever they pretty much they're, they're straight up about it. You know, yep. they just lay it on the line. Walt took me to meet a guy named Teeter Bill, Teeter Bill Conklin. He'd been a local patrolman in the Ramapo Valley, and he had a lot of stories to tell, just like Pearson Mapes had a lot of stories to tell. And Walt would bring me there, and I wouldn't talk. I mean, they were the talkers, mm-hmm. and they would tell all of these stories. And the thing is, Walt wasn't telling me about them. He was just bringing me into their space. And I think for him that was enough. Yeah. And and I also think he had opinions that he didn't necessarily want to even share. He just wanted to, like, encourage me to be in, in this orb for a while. And form your own. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so there were a lot of those kinds of exchanges. Hmm. Uh, 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 yeah, a lot, especially when I was little and I followed him around. And, and again, sometimes when I was older, when we were hunting and things, he would have me encounter people with him. We went to Froggy Wilson's camp in the Adirondacks when I was a teenager. And it was a, the whole adventure was a calamity of errors. I mean, the whole thing, just, just one thing after another, just didn't work or fell apart. Or and these men had so much fun, even though everything went wrong. Every, every possible thing that could happen went wrong. But they just had fun. And they never explained anything to me. And I was reaching that age as a teenager. I'm, I'm getting a bit sullen. I'm writing my poetry in my notebooks and so forth. And I'm amazed that these guys, one guy got up in the middle of the night, bunk beds, triple bunks Froggy had in that, that place. He gets up in the middle of the night because he's got to go to the bathroom. And he went to bed saying, I, I, don't, I should not be on the top bunk. I'm going to have to go in the middle of the night. Shut up. Get up there and go to sleep and everything. <laughs> and I didn't sleep the whole night because they all snored like buzz sauce. You know, everybody <laughs> snored. And for some reason, when they snore, they can sleep amongst the same. You know, the one person that's not snoring is going to stay awake. So he gets up in the middle of the night and he climbs out of this bunk bed, you know, steps on everybody. And, and he goes out and there's no bathroom. He just goes out and he has a bucket. And he's going to go out and sit on this bucket. In, in the side yard. <laughs> and Froggy didn't want him to do it, but that's how he wanted to do it. you know. So, okay, yeah. so he goes outside, and we're all trying to be quiet, but I, I'm thinking, well, he's going to come back in again eventually and make noise. And he comes charging back in, yanking his pants up, cursing, cursing, I'm, because a bear just kissed him in the ass. <laughs> and, and he's going on and on. And everybody wakes up, and Froggy goes running out there with a gun, you know, and they found a lot of raccoon tracks. <laughs> so a raccoon came up behind him and sniffed him, no doubt. But in his mind... He cold-nosed know, him. Yeah, he cold-nosed him, and it was a great big grizzly bear in his mind. <laughs> and and we never went to sleep. Oh, you know, that we just up ta- they were up talking all night. I think yeah. I fell asleep eventually. But these guys, their experience with one another was so interesting. I actually wrote a play about that episode. Uh-huh. I actually wrote a play once and produced it. Oh, I bet you could. And it was just all of their stories that went back and forth. 
But then sometimes amid those stories, you would hear these little moments, little confessional moments where they were, you know, they were warm enough and close enough because of their camaraderie where it would just get, you know, bald-faced honest. Mm. And, uh, and that was probably for me a very important time because I'm coming of age and I'm hearing, you know, the goofiness of how men are, but also the sensitivity and the vulnerability. Yeah. You know, they spend enough time together in a cabin in the middle of the, the Adirondacks. Right. They start to become vulnerable to one another and they know that's a safe place. Yeah. They can do that. Yeah. Interesting. Cause you're right that we, we spend so much of our time trying to wall that stuff off yeah. and, you yeah. know, insulate ourselves and not let on to, you know, what we're feeling inside. Well, and these three guys in the story, when, when they talked with Walt, I had no idea what they were talking about because they were picking up wherever they left off last. <laughs> it could have been last week or five years ago, you right. know, and, and oh, that's, that's great. That's that camaraderie thing. Yeah. You know, what gold though, you know, mm. what great stuff your dad, ex- you know, enabled you to be exposed to. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, obviously this had a profound effect on your ability to tell stories and, and the, uh, like I notice, even as you go through some of these stories, you'll pick up on some little detail, and it, it's a, it's something very small, and yet it immediately sets the stage, the room, the light, the color, the time, everything, and that's uh, well, that's the art. That's the art. Yeah, yeah, right there. Yeah. Well, this is fun. Another one. Terrific stuff. Um, looking forward to next week. What are we going to do next week? Next week we're doing a short story. A uh, little guy, but it's a significant one, and it's just called Watching. Watching. Okay. All right. Well, I'll be watching for next week then. <laughs> and uh, in the meantime, folks, hey, listen, remember, share these. Talk about these stories. And you know what? Write down a few stories of your own. Yeah. There's still time, and it's something that's really important. It captures a little bit of, of who you are, and it makes it kind of immortal in a way. We'll see you next week. Thanks, Chuck. Yep. Thanks. And now for a word from our favorite sponsor, the Montgomery Book Exchange. It's your hometown used bookstore located at 61A Clinton Street in the heart of the Montgomery, New York Business District. Folks, you're going to love the book exchange. This is a place where great books survive the test of time, where you can enjoy a book read by readers a generation before you. You might even find notes in the margins giving you an insight as to what mattered most to that previous reader. That's how the Montgomery Book Exchange turns a great book into a shared experience. And the Montgomery Book Exchange is known throughout the Hudson Valley and beyond for innovations like their 20 for $20 book stacks or their intimate author readings and signing experiences. How about their member-driven book club selections and book club talks, their monthly Zoom and in-person book auctions, and Handmade Montgomery. This is a wonderful event featuring local artisans and hundreds of beautiful handmade crafts and keepsakes. And how about getting store credits in the form of book bucks? Bring your well-loved or gently used books in for a store credit. Now, it's closed on Mondays, but it's open Tuesdays through Saturdays from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. and on Sunday from 12 noon to 4 p.m. Want more information? Just go to MontgomeryBookExchange.com or call them at 845 764 1787. That's 845-764-1787. Now, there's one more thing. They even have a special location at 8 Factory Street dedicated to your young readers. 
They call it the children's chapter, and it features a reading garden where your children can discover the joy of reading in a wonderful and stimulating learning environment. Now, my kids are all 30-something now, but I have four beautiful grandchildren, Jimmy, Sienna, Stella, and JJ, and I'm bringing all four of them down to the children's chapter. Also at this location, you'll find Miss Claire's Music Cupboard, featuring the award-winning research-based Kinder Music Program. The children's chapter is open Wednesdays through Saturdays. Check the website for specific class times that match your child's age. You can contact the children's chapter at 845-522-9652. MontgomeryBookExchange.com, your hometown used bookstore. You're going to love this place. been listening to Backport Stories with Chuck Stead. The song that you hear at the beginning and the end of the episode is Flyer's Rag, composed by Mr. Scott Lewis. Our producer is Joe Serino, and our cover photography is done by Karen Serino. We'll be back with another episode each Friday morning, so please subscribe, click the like button, share with family and friends, and join us each week for another Backport Story. <laughs>